1: Good afternoon and welcome. It's Monday, time for our Zoomer Squad, and here's the main question. Who is getting vaccine doses intended for long-term care, and how widespread is that type of diversion? A whistleblower nurse has been talking about the situation at Villa Gambin in Vaughan, where she was ordered to administer some vaccine to board members and family members of management and the board and to lie and say they were frontline workers on the paperwork she had to sign and submit. The Holmes answer, as it always is, is that these inoculations were part of a last-minute scramble to make sure no doses went to waste after everyone entitled to the vaccine, got theirs. Now, this raises all kinds of questions. And I can tell you that last week, I talked to Doris Greenspoon, the CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, for an upcoming episode of the Zoomer TV. And uh, she was suggesting that this practice has been widespread, and she blames the fact that hospitals are in charge of the vaccinating Process. Um, One thing I do know for sure, we've got to the point where everybody seems to be pointing the finger at each other for uh, the many snafus that are in this process. Now, I've also had some heartbreaking emails from people who say their loved ones' everyday regular kind of care has been completely neglected during the pandemic and continues to be neglected. And there are indications that elder abuse in the community is also increasing. So numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And now I would like to bring in our Zoomer squad, Bill Van Gorder, Interim Chief Policy Officer at CARP, Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine, and David Kravitz, VP of Zoomer Media and Chief Marketing Officer at CARP. Hi, everyone. Hi, Libby. Hi, Libby. Hi, Libby. Hi, let us begin with David. And uh, what do you make of the situation at Villa Gambin, where the nurse has spoken out? We know that this type of diversion occurred in hospitals at the University Health Network, where people on mat leave, people who work from home, people who never see patients uh, ended up getting vaccine doses
2: very disturbing. It's particularly disturbing that she said that she was told to lie about it in filling out the paperwork. Look, we're not talking about you know tens of thousands of doses, and you know saying gotcha over one or two if they miscalculated how many they had, and there was one vial or two vials that was going to be thrown away or expire, and they, they needed somebody to vaccinate and might as well do some good instead of harm. This is this is more systemic, and it's very disturbing if indeed there are no controls over this kind of thing and they're and they're covering it up afterwards so um one more reason why um we can't really have a lot of confidence in the way they've rolled this out even when they've had the vaccine
1: well and and it gets better peter because she also said that when she pointed this out they told her hey um you know we we can get a dose for your family too (laughs)
3: <laughs> yeah. and she she turned she declined she right?
1: declined and, i mean the the woman it you know her integrity is is Totally beyond reproach, yeah, because that's and a pretty and it, and it uh, seems, enticing offer, it
3: seems like her integrity is much better than the uh, that of the uh, executives of the home and you know i I've heard on twitter and and this is all hearsay i've heard on social media that uh, you know hospital executives are getting it uh, you know as you say, people who aren't really front line are getting it and um, and and it's raising questions with the the whole process because. It's not like we have millions of extra doses lying around that uh, can go. On. You know, we're in a time where we're having no doses shipped to Canada. You know, Moderna's um, cutting back on their delivery. Pfizer has completely cut back, and uh, you know, every dose is precious. And and if they're giving it to family members, it, like it, it's just it's it's a scandal.
1: Well, it, exactly. I mean, it's it's kind of seven doses here and and eight doses there, and. uh, it, it just seems, you know, they're supposed to have a plan in place for extra doses. I get guess they get these vials. I'm not sure that they have, a, you know, written from everyone. There will be people who don't want uh, the doses, but they're supposed to have a plan for the extra doses. And I'm also wondering, well, gee, you're saying... You couldn't uh, get to the retirement home or the shelter down the street, but you were able to rouse up the family of a board member in exactly. that hour and a half or whatever it was before the thing expired, Bill.
4: Yeah, there, you know, there are a number of issues here. First of all, uh, we've been hearing this kind of story so often in the last few weeks that uh, it's not hearsay anymore. We do know we do know it's happening. And then we hear the, the leadership of the vaccine distribution in the province talking about, well, speed, trump, right. perfection. Right. Well, that, I what a horrible thing to say. When we first started talking about the, the vaccine, Ontario created an ethical framework. They have it all listed out. It has six points uh, uh, it, it talks about uh, minimizing harm and equity, equity in distribution without bias or discrimination, and and fairness to ensure people get it in the right uh, right people in, in the right time. They're totally ignoring uh, their their own uh, their their own uh, rules that they set up, and 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 now we we find that that they're not they're. Doing very different from many other provinces. One of the things we've learned is that most of the provinces are delivering these vaccines through long-term care homes. That's where they're that's where they're stored. That's where they've put the the special equipment to to house them. Ontario is one of the whole few provinces that's doing it through through hospitals and uh, is making a huge difference. Between I mean, by the way it's being treated
1: well uh you make an interesting point that that was a directive from general ricky hillier who's in charge of the rollout so that has been one of my questions uh you know since we're uh, in the finger pointing game is is he part of the problem is he just the wrong person he has no medical background david
2: right. well i the question i have too aside from the background is that his strategy contradicts the stated strategy. There was a press conference uh, the week before last with uh, Ford, Elliot, and uh, at one of the rare appearances of uh, Sen- Seniors Minister Merrily Fullerton, where they said the vaccine is the iron ring. Ford was asked specifically by a reporter "You promised to put an iron ring around these nursing homes. Now what? And there was because there had been some criticism that the Barry home had come up, and there were you know weeks that whole thing about how bad the long term care and the lack of inspection. You no, know, no, no. The and Elliot said no, no. The vaccine is the iron ring. Well, if the vaccine is the iron ring, then every single dose should be going to the long term care homes first, and then you look at. General Hillier, whose strategy wasn't secret, would, no, no, we're doing it through the hospitals. How do you square those two uh, competing strategies? How do you square the circle there if you're going to make long-term care home your priority? Um, you can't possibly execute that if your hospitals are the distribution arm. Well, so a, they were contradicting themselves from the beginning.
1: Well, I mean, his excuse or their excuse was been, we, we, we couldn't store the Pfizer vaccine properly in nursing homes. It had to be, and they didn't authorize any change. But, uh, you know, we, as you pointed out, well, other provinces managed to get it done. Other countries managed to get it done. Yeah, right, certainly. right.
2: Yeah. And if you can't do it, if you can't do it, then you can't state the vaccine is the iron ring. You can't make Apparently, that statement.
4: The, the kind of refrigerators that we're talking about are used in industry, in industries that are not active during COVID. So they were they were quite available for, for loan in other provinces. Why not Ontario?
1: well ex- exactly and and uh we hear that israel managed to reach the vials i mean it's just it it uh i mean again i i don't know that this was intentional but i think it speaks to uh you know no no background in this
5: yes uh
1: so um it's one thing okay we have this case and presumably i don't know where it's going to go uh you know, I I don't know the extent to which these excuses were, will hold. Now, the the all long term care was supposed to be vaccinated by the end of last week. It's now been put off by just a week. But who the heck knows if that deadline will be met? Um, but in in the meantime, uh, uh, we've seen situations where. People are now complaining about regular care. I, I I have an email from a woman named Nancy whose mother is in, in Niagara region in a long-term care. They've been in outbreak for approximately a month. The residents have not had baths or showers in over three weeks. Hair has not been washed and uh, there has been no foot care, which is critical for people who have diabetes. I mean am i surprised no but honestly um you know how how can how can this be allowed to go on bill
4: well obviously we're we're forgetting what the main goal in all of this is and that's to look after our loved ones who are in long-term care and that's being shoved to the background the focus is now entirely on vaccine. We're not even uh, putting the good attention we did before in improving the infection controls in these facilities. We know that we're short-staffed, yet we're, we're locking uh, people, people away. Uh, we've heard this before, and now we're hearing again ageism just raising this ugly head every time we turn around.
1: Uh, yeah and uh, what about uh, now we're seeing on top of everything else uh, we're learning that there are more reports of elder abuse peter
3: yeah and and you know when when the system breaks down it, when the system can't provide even basic levels of care um, you know, it's not unexpected that that um, abuse arises, and and they're not looking after, you know, people's feet. They're not looking after. They're not um, separating patients from other patients who have COVID and how are they supposed to protect them against uh, abuse like it, it just the whole system seems to be breaking down and uh and 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 none of this is is a surprise really when when, when uh you know the stories we've seen uh, uh, about how bad it is and it's just getting worse
2: david well, I think that Peter's completely correct, and it goes back to something we've been talking about in this uh, on the show for weeks now, is that they haven't treated it as a one-off, like once-in-a-lifetime emergency and thrown additional atypical over-and-above-just-this-time-around kind of resources at it um, to make sure that They can mitigate to the maximum possible some of these bad effects. It's still process-driven. It's still business as usual. It's still the same channels and silos they've had before. That's been the real problem. They haven't treated it as a uh, a crisis. I mean, if you listen to the words of the Minister of Long-Term Care, she, her favorite verb is stabilize. We're working with our partners to stabilize. Well, what does that even mean? They don't have enough people. They've got to find more people desperately to get in there whether it's the military whether it's nurses whoever it is if they have to overpay if they have to double and triple pay they're not willing to do that so clearly they're saying we can handle it within the existing system and within the existing paperwork and within the existing processes and the truth is they cannot
1: well, you know, it's interesting. We were talking last week about this, about how they probably just don't want the embarrassment of calling in the military. Uh, but uh, it seems to me that the, one of the biggest disconnects is that the people in charge have not figured out how to get their orders carried out i mean and and this is something i think that that was true before the pandemic i remember having conversations about certain things with the minister of health and um there was one occasion where she even said okay i'm gonna check this and get back to you and she's saying no that's wrong and i'm telling her no you are wrong i know for a fact that this is what happened on the ground and i mean you know that's not necessarily an ideological thing. No,
2: it's a management management thing, and there are many models, unfortunately, bad ones in history, often associated with, you know, wars, It's it's almost like a trope of the general looking at the map and seeing where all the troops are, and out there in the field, it's a completely different story than what he thinks. And so he's moving troops around that don't exist, and he's defending positions that have long been overrun. This is what's happening here. They have not been straight. There's a finite number of people. There's about 80,000 people living in 600 buildings. What is your plan for those people? How many of those people have you taken care of? How many of those people are at risk? What other treatment and care is needed for those people? It's quantifiable. And they haven't given one straight answer throughout the whole thing. If they were engulfed, they should even say, we're overwhelmed, we're calling in the military.
1: Well, yeah, they don't want to do wanna,
2: that. They don't want to do that. So we, that would even be better. You know what? Well, we, uh, uh, 20 years of neglect and 20 years of buildup of all kinds of bad things, and we haven't got the horses to deal with this, so we're taking these unusual measures. But they won't say that.
1: Well, and and the other thing is, I mean, you know, the when we talk about milestones, it's, you know, notional, but... Well, it's more than notional. We, we passed a very grim milestone. On Friday, we surpassed the number of deaths in long-term care in the first wave. And yep, now yep. we are talking about reopening. While we have surpassed the worst of it from the first wave, we're seeing new variants. Uh, what about that? D- does this increase the danger to people in long-term care? Bill? Oh,
4: very much, uh, very much does. Uh, you know, it's a race now between the variants and the and the vaccines and and who will get there first. We know, uh, we've already seen, and, and, and we know from other countries that if the variants get into long-term care, we're going to see an, another huge increase. So that's why one of the things that CARP has been saying, let's go back to the basics. What's the infection control in all these uh, facilities? Is it being carried out uh, correctly? And is it being carried out with understanding of the differences between between one facility and another. For instance, and it's, I don't want to be like the, the government and start making suggestions from, from afar, but if you look facility to facility, many facilities were used to having family members come in on a regular basis to give much, much of the care that we're talking about wasn't uh, available in that case uh, you heard about in uh, niagara and uh we if we could get staff in and out of the facilities on a daily basis why can't we have a limited number of family members being able to do same the same thing well some homes
1: allow them in bill they are. Yeah, they
4: they, they are. They, they are. They are. But but not uh, but not all of them. It's not it's not consistent. And uh, we have. So that's why we have many cases. Uh, I, I can't believe that the family members uh, are getting in regularly to the case you heard about into that home that uh, that 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 kind of thing could be happening.
1: Well, uh um and those essential caregivers, well, they're getting vaccinated before the actual family members. Peter, right. that is a bit ironic.
3: Yeah, it's it's heavily ironic. The whole the whole thing is uh leading to a you know, a third wave with these new variants and and you know, we we did a we failed in the second wave to protect our our elderly and and are we going to you know, What's the third wave going to look like? If if the second one was so poorly run and and uh, managed, and uh, so many deaths, and uh, what's the third one going to look like? Because it's it's going to come.
1: Okay, well, I mean, uh, David, we've we've got the kids going back to school. We've got the variants, the first evidence of the Brazilian va- variant we had on the weekend. Uh, we have the Great Britain variant that's uh, basically uh, swept through uh, that nursing home Roberta place in Barrie. So, I mean, wh- what, what do we think that we are facing?
2: Well, I, I can tell you that it's a lose-lose right now because of the way we've handled it and and it's easy to be a critic but just this morning Libby, in preparation for the show went on the Government of Canada website where they have a daily epidemiology update and they're showing as of this morning, it might be yesterday's number, 20,767 fatalities, deaths in Canada uh, from COVID from the beginning. And the percentage under the age of 60 is 3.6% of all the fatalities. So that means under less than 1,000 people in the whole country in an entire year under the age of 60. 60 to 69, 7.6%, 70 to 79, 18.8%, 80 plus 69.9%. So with all the lockdowns and all the contagion and all the control, it, it's, it's being passed around, it's not being passed around, wear a mask, don't wear a mask. With all of that, 80% of the deaths are people, uh, 70% of the deaths are people 80 plus. So we're not protecting the people who are proven wave after wave, variety after variety to be the most vulnerable. This iron ring doesn't exist. And we're diffusing this everywhere else, and I'm not saying we shouldn't, the lockdown, and uh, I support all those measures, but they're not being able to channel the resources into where they are most needed, and they have consistently failed uh, to do so, uh, to t- to do the right thing by our uh, senior population. Uh,
1: David, uh, what is the state of uh, the CARP campaign to uh, get the Minister of Long-Term Care fired? Well-
2: We'll reach seven thousand signatures probably today or tomorrow. It's it's maintaining itself. It's because the stories are continuing to come in. They're horrific, but right now, and let's be blunt. There's a little bit of an excuse. Uh, I don't accept it, but there's a little bit of an excuse in terms of the spotlight. There's a little bit of bait and switch. It's all vaccine, vaccine, vaccine. And that's important. It's vital. And it's understandable that both the public and the government are focused on where can we get these vaccines and when can we get these vaccines. So... Uh, I'm I'm, I'm worried that people are going to say well you know the nursing homes we already know about all that the big thing is now the vaccines are going to save us and while we're waiting for the vaccines what else is going on in those nursing homes and when we do get the vaccines are they even being you know properly distributed so uh, we're keeping the pressure on but right now so much emphasis is on the vaccines that I think the ministers responsible for both the health system and the long term care system are are able to skate a little bit while waiting for the vaccines, and I think they're probably not unhappy to have some of the uh, spotlight shining on the prime minister and. Uh his promises to produce these vaccines.
1: Well, and and speaking of the vaccines, I mean, um, very interesting. And I've been saying this for a while, you know, why didn't we get early doses? And it seems that the government did not take into account the possibility that a vaccine might be approved before the end of 2020, which it was, and therefore had to beg just a very small number of doses because all of the contracts were talking about the end of the first quarter of this year. So that's number one. And every day, the prime minister seems to get up and say, don't worry, we're going to vaccinate everybody who wants by the end of September, while independent people measuring this, notably the economist says, no way, it will be the middle of next year.
3: Very likely. Um,
1: Peter, what do you make of that?
3: Well yeah I, I I heard January but the middle of next year too um the you know this this could be an election issue for Trudeau I think and uh certainly the long term care home issue is going to be one for the Ontario government and I think the vaccine distribution or lack of it right now will be uh, an issue for the Trudeau government in the next election if there is one this year
1: Mhm David are are we uh, sorry, or Bill, uh, are we sure that the long-term care situation will be an issue for the Ontario government?
4: I think uh, they have an yes. example that it might be. As you know, uh, in Nova Scotia, they just had a uh, leadership uh, race to replace the premier, and the leader in the race at the beginning was the former health minister, and he came a bad last. Uh, uh, got only 23% of the vote and had to drop out. After the first uh, round, so uh, so what had happened in health became very clear to uh, those uh, those voters in Nova Scotia, and I think that the other provinces should, should worry the same uh, the same the same way. People are looking to their their leaders and not judging them well.
0: well
1: I-
4: is certainly going to work hard to make it the election issue in Ontario.
1: Well, yes. For sure. Sure. And, and in my most uh, cynical moments, I'm thinking that perhaps the reason that the Premier is keeping the Minister of Long-Term Care around is so that uh, when we're finally through this, she can be the fall person.
2: Well, maybe, maybe, yeah. or there'll be a cabinet shuffle, you know, he'll disguise it with a few other moves, and he doesn't want her to... Uh, he doesn't want to push her overboard now because that would be a tacit admission. Don't forget as well that the Morocco Commission has asked for more time and complained about not being able to get documents that they want while the Minister of Long-Term Care says, no, no, you've got to wrap it up by April 30th. So what are they looking for? What are they going to find that is uh, uh, embarrassing to the government? So there's a lot of reasons that uh, uh, he has, I suppose, politically to you know talk about vaccines only or any other topic but this one but it's definitely going to be an election issue and they definitely uh there's going to have to be there's a lot of anger out there and there's there's just too many things going wrong uh, that could not that maybe didn't need to go as badly wrong i think that's the that's the issue um and uh uh, you know, we've seen these reversals in other places. All of a sudden uh, in the United States, Governor Cuomo, who was a big hero, is now all of a sudden, wait a minute, you guys understated the number of deaths in nursing homes, and maybe you weren't quite as good at this as uh, we thought you were. So every, there's a lot of political prices being paid now for, um, you know, a maladministration, not necessarily evil intent, but, you know, incompetent uh, execution.
1: Okay, we are uh, running out of time. Uh, Peter, what would you like to leave us with?
3: Well, I I was reading a report that said um the you know, Christian Elliott and Marilyn Fullerton will be, be appearing before the long-term uh yeah. Care Commission, so that, that's something to watch for. It'll be very interesting to see how she dances around the questions if if they ask difficult questions. But I, but I, I'll be fascinated to see what her testimony is. Uh,
1: are we sure that they won't be behind closed doors?
3: Well, yeah, but but presumably at some point it will be, have to be made public.
1: Uh, Bill,
3: long-term care needs to be completely
4: rebuilt from the the ground up and governments have to realize that we can't continue to warehouse our older adults. But in the meantime, those facilities, as David has said often, they're on fire. We need action now to put the fire out, and long-term plans and words aren't going to, aren't going to be the answer.
2: David? I agree with, I agree with Bill, and I, I think, though, that they've, they've figured out how to you know, finesse this at least, Uh, for the time being because they've got a bright, new, shiny object to try to get us to focus on, and it's an important one. It's a a vital one, obviously, the vaccines. But um, I want everybody to know that we are uh, continuing to watch this and we're building the case, and if they think that it's going to be over when some vaccines arrive, uh, you know, the cavalry's going to arrive and everybody's going to forget what happened, Uh, that is, I can promise you're not going to be the case.
1: Okay. Thank you so much to our Zoomer squad. We're staying on top of this. Um, It is critical. Uh, Thank you, Bill Van Gorder, David Kravitz, and Peter Mugridge. Talk soon. Thank you, Libby. Thank you. All right, people, we are taking a quick break. And uh, the other big story, of course, is the reopening of the economy, a break for small businesses that have been disadvantaged. We're going to be doing that on the other side of the break. Let me give the numbers out again so that you can weigh in. 416-360-0740, toll-free 866 740 740 and we'll be right back
0: you're listening to an exclusive podcast of fight back on zoomer radio heard weekdays from noon to one fight back with Libby nimer on zoomer radio
1: welcome back Premier Ford is expected to announce that he is lifting the state of emergency and allowing the province to gradually reopen for business. And this comes after concerted pressure from the business community. And it would be a break, especially for small businesses, which have been totally disadvantaged by the regime, which allowed big box stores to stay open while they had to close. Here's what Mayor John Tory thinks.
4: I do hear that uh, smaller businesses uh, that have been largely closed, uh, those being in sort of retail as opposed to indoor dining, uh, but that the retail side might get some dispensation to allow some people inside their stores, which I think would be terrific because I think they've been operating under a somewhat unfair regime in that the big box stores have been open and they've all been closed. And I'm certainly urging that that be the case, but uh, we'll see.
1: Well, indeed, we'll see. The other side of the coin, of course, is the worry that we're opening too soon, just as the new, more contagious variants are spreading. Kids are going back to school and after the Super Bowl, which may have been a super spreader event. I'd like to hear from you, 416 toll-free 866 740 And now let's go to Rocco Rossi, president and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce along with Donna Dewar, co-owner of Mildred's Temple Kitchen here in Liberty Village, and Nadine Devereux-Yaculo, the co-owner of Capo Salerno Italian Fashion in Toronto. Hello, everyone. Thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Hi, thank you. Thank you for having us. Okay, let's begin with Rocco, and I think, Rocco, this is your first time on the show. Welcome. Thanks for being with us.
2: Uh, always pleasure to uh, hear you, and now to be with you.
1: Okay, well that's great. So, um, from w- what do you know? What are you expecting?
2: Well, look, at I'm I'm hopeful that um, that we're going to have uh, some reopening. I certainly expect uh, a regional um, uh, approach, as happened after the first lockdown. Um, uh, so, you know, likely going to see. Uh, areas of higher concentration of cases: uh, Toronto, Peel, York, um, uh, probably delayed relative to uh, to others. I was encouraged in the the quote uh, the bit that you had with Mayor Tory, um, and certainly that uh, has been repeated by um, Dr. Bogosh uh, this this weekend, who's on the vaccination uh, council and well known. Uh, uh, well known on, on these issues, who basically said, "Look, he he couldn't make sense of big boxes being open and small retailers uh, not. Uh, so long as you have the steps in place, uh, you can have um, safe uh, small interior spaces in the way that you can have uh, safe large uh, large ones. So uh, that's what uh, that what that's what we expect." We would hope, though, uh, again, given your point on, on uh, the variants, what is significantly different than before the lockdown? Because make no mistake, uh, while we hate it, while it's a total blunt instrument, it is the lockdown that has brought the numbers um, down. And if, they, if that comes off, particularly now with these variants, how are we going to control... Not simply having a third wave, and so you know, we want to see a doubling down on testing. We want to see rapid testing uh, out there more. We want to see more of an investment on the part of of contact tracing, and and for individuals, for all of us to be downloading that COVID Alert app. Um, you know, it's on us as well. Uh, reopening is not less vigilance; it's more vigilance. <laughs>
1: Nadine Devereux how um yeah. how much has the current uh, rules how much has that disadvantaged you and and uh if you are allowed to open on a limited basis is is that going to help you hang in well uh i mean with the the lockdown
6: itself it's it's been really hard because we've been closed uh back in november before christmas um seeing some of the other regions still operating a few weeks before christmas whereas we weren't that was it was really it was hard um we've had a tough time we've been struggling for sure like most other small businesses out there uh i think that we've been fortunate because for one we have a landlord that understands our situation so um he's been he's been great with us for that but moving forward, um, if we're able to, to actually open, it will help us. Um, I don't, I can, I can say, I don't understand. I mean, I do understand, you know, why we had to have the lockdown, everything else, but the way that the whole thing was done, it was just, it wasn't done proper. I mean, One thing is that for us as a small business, we took precautionary measures. We have HEPA filters with UV lights. We have uh, front and back door to allow for fresh air to flow through, which was one of the biggest concerns that the government had as small businesses, you know, well, we can't control whether or not they have these things. But um, if we can reopen, it will help us, definitely, because uh, online sales, it's not the same having the experience that you can when we do our custom tailoring and things like that. You can't just buy an item online and, and, um, feel confident and comfortable with it as you do when you're in our boutique.
1: Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, the argument that, they had about keeping small businesses closed is that they weren't so much worried about customers, but they were worried about employees uh, mm-hmm. infecting each other. I, you know, I, I, that was, I mean, the whole thing to me is, uh, I don't know, it just made no sense at all.
6: Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. And I would be watching the, the, uh, the newscasts and reading the articles of what was being said. it, it didn't quite make a whole lot of sense uh, to allow small businesses to not operate whatsoever except for curbside pickup but then you know you've got these big box stores and they're just I hate to say it but they're loading the people in I went to Costco I went to Walmart I saw what was going on you know as a small business owner I was angry I wanted to see what's exactly happening here are they controlling and um and not to the point that they should have been not to what what, you know, Ford was hoping, which was the fifty percent capacity. Um, I don't understand why they couldn't have just blocked the aisles for the non essentials. If they can do it when they need to do an aisle maintenance or an aisle change, you know, why can't they do it during COVID? This is the most important time that they should be really limiting things. Well, um, but as far as like staff members go, I, I I can understand that. You don't know what they're doing when they leave. However, um Small businesses like ours, it's my husband and I, you know, we have our few employees as well. um, But even with our customers, I know my customers, I have their phone numbers, I know where they live. I know their children and their parents in most cases. So I can trace everybody that comes through my store.
1: Okay, Donna Dewar, um, there's no plan to reopen restaurants for in-house dining. How are you doing with the takeout thing? Well, Libby, we are, you know, like
5: everybody uh, out there who's operating a, a small business uh, struggling. Um, and I think the restaurant uh, environment uh, is is very unique in that you have a situation where people are coming into your space, but at some point they do take their masks off to eat and drink and talk yeah. and and, and uh, you know, we we try to manage that as best we can. So, I feel that the government has blanketed this one-size-fits-all. Um, and, you know, listening to Nadine speak about her her situation, hers is a very different scenario from, from a restaurant situation. Um, we do see a big demand for takeout, for curbside. I don't think you would see that demand for, you know, tailored um, clothing and something as specialized as she's doing. So it's very difficult to... You know, look at each individual business and say, you can do this, you can't do that. And I suppose the government <laughs> didn't have much choice but to put this blanket across the board on the lockdown. But I do agree uh, wholeheartedly that I think there was some unfairness when it came to the big box stores. I, um, I I had difficulty getting my head around that. We all want to ensure the safety of our our staff. And our guests, and we're all, you know, we're all making the sacrifices to get through this. And uh, it was perplexing to to see that um, situation carry on.
1: I'm I'm asking, how are you doing? Are you are you uh, <laughs> hanging in? Just doing takeout, and uh, yeah. how long can you keep doing that? Well, I I don't see in I don't see dining rooms opening
5: up for some time yet, especially in Toronto. Uh, you know, we are sort of the epicenter where Toronto is a hub for travel and products coming in, in and out of this country. Uh, you know, it's tough to regulate this uh, pandemic in such a busy spot. How are we doing? Uh, well, we're pivoting like so many operators are. I think we are in a better situation because our brand is well established. It's been around for 30 plus years. So that's a bit of an edge for us. But for young operators or new operators just starting up, it's it's really challenging for them. And um,
1: it's exhausting. (laughs) I'll I'll bet.
5: Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Rocco Rossi,
1: do you have a sense of how many businesses are on the brink?
2: We've uh, we've been doing some surveying and also along with uh, our colleagues in the Canadian Retail Council and Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Um, and, um, you know, you could see, and obviously it depends on the category, of, um, you know, restaurants um, that, that don't have the exceptional quality and brand of a Mildred's Temple, uh, as, you know, please uh, order 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 delivery wherever you can um, but but conceivably one in two restaurants by the end of this depending on how long could uh, be closed permanently um, we're looking at upwards of 200,000 businesses primarily small businesses across Canada uh, being uh, potential victims of of this and that's uh, you know that's not just businesses, that's people's dreams, that's their lives. Um, that's opportunities. in January alone, um, Canada saw 200,000 uh, job decline uh, and those declines uh, you know directly relate to a ton of businesses that were um, put through um, put through the lockdown. so it's it's tough. what will? Determined though, at the end is you know how quickly will the vaccination roll out? How uh, how much support will the governments continue to be able to put in? In particular, there are a bunch of bills that have been deferred. You know everything from uh, from HST to property taxes and and uh, and everything in between and. Deferred taxes and fees are fine for cash flow purposes in the near term. But a year in, you know, and a year plus in by the time the vaccination uh, rolls out to herd immunity levels, people are looking at massive debt. Um, And at that point, they do the calculation and they say, you know, this is what I can make. This is the margin my business generates. This is what I owe. This is how long it would take me to pay that back and unless governments decide to write down a lot of those deferrals people are going to say you know i'm not signing up to indentured servitude so here are the keys i'm done Uh, and that would be horrendous because you know small businesses are not just about selling goods and services they're the heart of our community they're they're our main streets they're the people who support our local charities and they need our business more than they've ever needed it before.
1: Rocco, would you say there were some initial uh, there were problems with some of the measures that the government announced to ease for small business, notably uh, the rent relief? Uh, have they uh, tweaked their programs enough to make them user friendly at least?
2: Well, they, they've had to tweak all of theirs. I mean, and and this, in some respects, is. Uh, is is a bit of a silver lining of what's happened because by their nature governments are designed to go slowly right there's all kinds of committees and studies and so on and covid has basically said that's just not good enough you've got to you've got to move far faster and so you saw even things like the wage subsidy when it originally came out was about you know, a 10% wage subsidy, which we and many others said, look, that's not going to move the dial. They moved that up to 75%, uh, extended the qualifications, you know, still leaving some uh, to fall through the cracks. The, the rental was huge for uh, small businesses, and it was a bit of a disaster when it was limited to basically being funneled through uh, landlords because it put landlords into into really bad situations. I mean, many of them are small businesses themselves and they were put into the position of, you know, you have to apply for some, but not all of your tenants. And that may be easy for government to do, but it's pretty hard for a landlord who's dealt with businesses and, you know, say they have four tenants and one of them was down 70%, but but the other three were at 55%. And you could say, well, I'm gonna apply for this guy, but not for the other three. like. No, government, you figure it out. So having that change was was huge. The most recent provincial government announcement around the small business support grants, not more loans. We don't need more loans. Ten to twenty thousand dollar grants. We just got to get them out uh, faster. So there has been um, there has been movement, there has been tweaking, but it's going to have to continue. And and really the question, because a lot of people say, well, look, if if companies are going to go under, then, you know, maybe we shouldn't throw good money after bad. Some are going to have to go under. The problem with that thinking is that when you go to restart the economy in the same way that when you go to restart a fire, if you have embers... It's a lot easier to start a fire. If you allow massive numbers of bankruptcies, the scar tissue that creates makes it more expensive to restart. And that's why they should also be looking at some of these deferred taxes, fees to basically send the signal to small business. that
1: Rocco, I've got to take a break, but we will be back on the other side of the break. Welcome back. I am talking to business community and some small businesses about what we are expecting. Uh, basically, as soon as we're off the air and we're expecting the premier to announce a staged reopening, we are expecting that finally small businesses will be able to reopen, not so for restaurants that are limited to takeout now. Uh, we've got a few minutes. If you want to make a quick call, 416 740 toll free one 866 740 And Nadine, R- Rocco raised a very interesting point. You know, we're in the emergency now, there are emergency measures, but what about a year or a year and a half into it when when some of the businesses that made it, through the emergency are looking at their books are looking at debts and you know when I think of a of a a fashion store I -hmm. love fashion I buy way too many clothes but at (laughs) this point I have nowhere to wear them (laughs) even I am uh, stopping we had to change our entire concept we had to go to
6: more of like the the casual at home cozy wear right so it was hard for us to have to pivot in that way, but you have to pivot in this situation that we're in now. To your point, though, when these businesses have to look back at their books and they see that they've taken on these loans that they might not be able to pay back, I think that there's going to be a uh, there's going to be a big problem. I mean, it's great the government's doing these things to for the funding and that to try to help out, but it's a band aid. At the end of the day, have you, you know, taken you're, loans? You're giving, yeah. Have Have you taken loans? Have we taken the loan? Yeah, we have. We've taken the loan. And you know what we've done is we've put aside the portion that has to be paid back. You know, like... I make sure I don't want to get us into that type of a situation, but we've had to take the loans. We've had to apply for wage subsidy, the rent relief, the the loans. We've had to apply for the um, the grant as well, because for us, when we buy our products, everything comes from Italy, so we have to purchase ahead of time, and we had to do all of our buying for the winter and fall um, the fall and winter season. So when our items are coming in, which now they're still coming in, these. Are things that were paid for back in november october when we were basically told to shut down so it it really hurt us you know uh it's upsetting it's just it's very upsetting what's been happening to see like we were saying before it's you know we keep saying the same thing the big box stores are able to be open and functioning and like ford said if somebody throws a pair of jeans in the cart I can't stop them at checkout if they're going to buy it. That's not not right. You see,
1: like, I mean, a lot of that shopping, frankly, seemed to be so uh, uh, recreational. You see entire families going with kids. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it was, I don't know. Uh, Donna, what about you planning for the future and for reopening and and managing all the stuff? Have you taken loans that you'll have to pay back and all of that? Yeah, we've taken advantage of all the um, subsidies and
5: and grants that the government has put out there. And quite frankly, uh, if we didn't have those opportunities, we would be closed. I mean, we just have seen such a significant drop in our sales our business also relies very heavily on special events and weddings and we now have uh, couples who who rebooked in march of last year uh for for march of this year and now we'll be Mar- booking for march of 2022 so um you know i i uh i do concur with with Nadine, and certainly with Rocco, you know, those uh, those are going to be very difficult things for us to look at when we're back up and running. I would like to think, though, that the government has also learned a lot through this pandemic in their ability to maneuver quickly and look for much more efficient ways to um, collect taxes from people to uh to work efficiently with their own organizations because we have found everything to be very seamless right from the get-go i will say um they've they've reacted very quickly when we've filed and put our applications and we've had a few follow-up calls just you know doing their due diligence and i'm always kind of surprised when we get a call from the government <laughs> asking questions but uh, it means things are are moving forward but the real tough work lays ahead and that's when we get back to whatever that new normal will be i don't see um i don't see i see pent-up demand for restaurant dining but not so much for indoor dining i think there's still a lot of trepidation out there and there will be for months to come until we see massive vaccination taking place so we we've had to really pivot our business and rejig our business model to to stay to stay um open
1: yeah and at least until the weather gets good and we can sit on those patios yeah. again oh. R- rocco rossi uh we have like about 30 seconds left what would you like to leave us with and and uh what is most important here
2: Stay positive and test negative. Uh, the government's got to keep the support coming. People have to keep being creative and pivoting. Um, you know, in the cities, we we thankfully have far more access to broadband than in rural regions. So that rural divide needs to uh, um, needs to be bridged. But uh, there is a light at the end of the tunnel with the vaccines. The tunnel's still long, uh, but it's coming. Let's do our part. And let's stay vigilant even if
4: the reopening comes.
1: Okay, well, always good to end on a positive note. Thank you so much, Rocco Rossi, Donna Dewar, and Nadine debreu Yakulo. Thank you. Thank you, Libby. Thank you. Thank okay. you so much for having us. Okay. And um, uh, remember, uh, uh, the Premier will be announcing those measures shortly, and we will have it all for you on our afternoon newscasts here on Zoomer Radio. And that is all the time we have for today.
0: You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zuma Radio.